Good morning, everyone. The passage that we have before us today contains the very well-known story of Nicodemus' encounter with Jesus and the even more well-known and much-loved scripture verse that contains the heart of the gospel message, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, Nicodemus, I think, has, over the years, had a very bad rap. If I asked any one of you to tell me what you know about Nicodemus, I can almost guarantee that one of the first things that you'll tell me is that he came to Jesus at night. People will sometimes say that he came under the cover of darkness, which makes him sound like some sort of sneaky criminal who's not to be trusted. Coward is what Nicodemus has been remembered for, and it is such a great shame. So let's have a look at this part of his story here. Our scripture this morning is from John chapter 3. It's, it's quite long, but I think we need to, to read all of it together. John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you not, do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son in the world, into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, 
but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. It's a passage that is just chock-a-block full of teaching. It's not a teaching moment. This is a teaching masterpiece here. But first, first things first, we're going to back up a little bit here and put this passage in the context of where it comes in John's Gospel. John is very strategic about where he places things and what he places. Um, so we do well to have a look at, at where this passage is placed. John opens his gospel with that wonderful prologue that proclaims who Jesus is and introduces this theme of light and darkness, which he then carries on through the gospel. Speaking of Jesus, he says, in him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The life that was in him was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. So we're going to take that one and we're going to lock it away somewhere for a little while. We're going to come back to that one later. Moving on from the prologue, we have that proclamation of John the Baptist. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's some very clear statements about who Jesus is right at the outset of this gospel. It leaves no doubt about who Jesus is. We keep on moving and we reach the calling of the disciples, including in chapter 1, verse 46, Nathaniel, who could not believe that anything good could come from Nazareth, but was encouraged by Philip, come and see, come and see for yourself. And so we're going to take that one and we're going to lock that one away as well. We're going to come back to that later. Chapter two then opens with Jesus's first recorded miracle. And it is a miracle of transformation. Water transformed into wine at a wedding banquet. A little teaser or perhaps a little opening for the many stories of transformation which are going to come after it. And the first one of these stories is of the need for religious transformation. After the wedding in Cana, Jesus visits briefly with his mother and his brothers before travelling southwards from Galilee down towards Jerusalem in Judea for the Passover. And no doubt many, many, many others were making the same trip for this most important pilgrimage festival. And once he's there, he enters the temple courts and he is absolutely appalled by what he sees because the religious leaders have allowed or, or perhaps even encouraged the temple courts to be turned into a marketplace. There are people changing money. There are people selling all of the animals and things needed for the, the, the sacrifice. And he's allowed the sacrificial system 
they've allowed the sacrificial system to be defiled because they've turned it into a dodgy money-making venture. And so it's a very well-known story. Jesus turns the tables over. There's coins scattering everywhere. And then he sends all of them out, all of the people who were involved in all of this, and he drives all of their animals out of the temple courts. What he has seen there is not the kind of religion that the Father requires. Religious transformation is coming. He tells them about it, but they don't quite understand, at least not yet. And what follows on from this story about the need for religious transformation is Jesus's most comprehensive teaching on the need for personal transformation. It is a teaching moment par excellence. And in it, he speaks of the infinite love of the Father. He reveals his own identity. He explains about how all this transformation will come about. And he speaks about the work of the Holy Spirit. Salvation, the kingdom of God, new birth, eternal life, and divine grace. All of these concepts are covered in this amazing piece of teaching. And all of this revealed to a man who came in the darkness. As far as we know, at this point, not even the disciples had been privy to such a comprehensive teaching from the lips of Jesus, which all begs the question, why this man? Why Nicodemus? Well, there are two things that John wants us to know about this man that came to Jesus in the darkness of night. And the first of these is that he was a Pharisee and a member of the Jewish ruling council. The second of these is his name, Nicodemus. And I'm convinced that both of these facts are included here for a reason. If they weren't included, the story would make perfect sense. You could leave them out and it doesn't make any difference to how Jesus answers the question. There was a man who came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, it's a perfectly sensible statement. The details of his name and the fact that he was a Pharisee, they're not essential for the story to make sense. But John has chosen to include them for a reason. The Pharisees were religious to the extreme. In fact, they were so religious that they considered themselves to be the caretakers of the law. They were fastidious about keeping the law. They were highly disciplined. They considered themselves to be morally above everyone else because of the great lengths that they went to to keep the law. Nicodemus was a Pharisee and he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He was the most religious of the religious. And yet when Jesus looks at him, he sees a dead man walking. Remember that man who responding to Jesus's call to follow him replied, oh, just let me go and bury my father first. 
What did Jesus reply to him? He said, let the dead bury their own dead. That man was living dead and Nicodemus, despite all of his religiosity, was also the living dead. And the only way to remedy that situation is not by religious transformation, but by personal transformation. Religion saves nobody. Hard work saves nobody. Moral uprightness saves nobody. And that is what John intends to emphasise by including this detail that Jesus' nighttime visitor was a Pharisee. There's only one way for the living dead to be brought back to life, and that is to be born again. Now, the second detail we're told about this visitor is his name, Nicodemus. It's used three times throughout the passage. John wants us to know it. Nicodemus. It doesn't mean much to us. It's just a name. But then most of us don't speak ancient Greek or Hebrew. Nicodemus is an absolutely fascinating name because it can be derived from both the Greek and the Hebrew. In Greek, it means conqueror or victor of people. And if derived from Hebrew, it means, wait for this, innocent blood. Contained within this man's name, conqueror or victor of the people, innocent blood is a description of the one that he came to see on that dark night. And it is a word summary or picture of the entire passage. What an awesome and inspired book that we have in our homes in front of us, available to us to read. Now, all of this is interesting and well and good, but it still doesn't really explain why Jesus chose to reveal so much about himself and about the kingdom of God to this one man, the Pharisee Nicodemus. After all, Jesus wasn't exactly known for being a huge fan of the Pharisees. In fact, he reserved some of his harshest criticisms for the Pharisees. There were many, many people believing in him at the time. Surely there was no shortage of candidates to whom he could reveal such great treasure. And the answer to this question, I think, is contained in the couple of verses that precede this chapter. I don't really think chapter 3 should be separated from these verses that come before it. They're important. John chapter 2, 23 to 24. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need a man's testimony about a man, for he knew what was in a man. Many believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew all men. 
And yet with Nicodemus, there is no holding back. There isn't much that really matters that Jesus doesn't reveal to Nicodemus. Because Jesus knew what was in a man. In short, he believed that in Nicodemus, he had found a genuine seeker. Could there be better proof of the statement that he knew what was in a man than choosing to reveal the secrets of the kingdom of heaven to a Pharisee? Nicodemus gets a very bad rap in Christian tradition for coming to Jesus at night, but the actions of Jesus here give testimony to the state of that man's heart. Nicodemus had a good heart, a genuine seeker's heart. He had genuinely sensed God at work in Jesus. That part of his belief was genuine, but it had not yet been transformational for him. Chapter 2, those last few verses also tell us that Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, being a Passover, Jerusalem would have been crowded. It would have been full to capacity with people and animals everywhere. Jesus has just created a huge scene in the temple by publicly challenging the leaders of the Jews and clearing out that temple. A Pharisee wanting a private audience with Jesus to ask a seeker's question would face two problems under those circumstances. Firstly, he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And that group derived their political power from Rome. For that group, political unrest, political activists were bad news. And this was only the beginning of Jesus's ministry. They didn't know much about him at this time. And yet here he was causing this enormous stir in the temple. So as a member of the Sanhedrin, caution in approaching Jesus is perhaps quite understandable. Perhaps that was his reason for coming at night. If it was, then nighttime or otherwise, Nicodemus is to be applauded for the very fact that he came at all. But he did come. Just like Philip had told Nathaniel, he came to see for himself. Come, come and see for yourself. Don't take my word for it. If you want to know who Jesus is, like Nathaniel, like Nicodemus, come and see for yourself. Now, there's a much more practical problem that Nicodemus may also have faced in seeking an audience alone with Jesus. And that is that it would have been virtually impossible to be alone with Jesus during a crowded Passover festival. These verses that precede chapter 3 tell us that many people saw the miraculous signs that Jesus was doing and believed in his name. In the already crowded streets and marketplaces of Jerusalem, Jesus would have himself been drawing a crowd because of what he was doing. It would have been almost impossible to get near him, let alone to get close enough to speak with him. 
But at night time, there might be an opportunity to speak with him in person. And so Nicodemus comes and he professes his belief that Jesus is a teacher from God based on the miraculous signs that Jesus has performed. And Jesus begins to speak to him about the need for personal transformation. No one, he says, can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Now Nicodemus doesn't understand. Surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born again. And Jesus replies with a statement that is so packed with depth and meaning that we're going to struggle today to get much beyond it. It won't be possible to cover all of this passage this morning because it's just quite simply too much in it. But I want to stop here for a minute and look at, at this part of it. I tell you the truth, says Jesus, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. And this is a, a reference or an allusion to Ezekiel chapter 36, 24 to 28. It's a passage about God drawing his people back to himself, cleansing them with water, giving them a new heart and putting his spirit in them. It's not a specific explicit teaching here on baptism, except in the sense that baptism is symbolic of that cleansing. What Jesus is saying here in alluding to this passage from Ezekiel is that we need to be cleansed, which is signified in this case by the water, and that we need to be transformed by his spirit. Jesus continues, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Like produces like. We know that to be true, don't we? Elephants produce elephants. Humans produce human beings. Our children grow up and for the most part, they resemble us. Small parents produce generally small children. Very tall parents generally produce tall children. It's odd if they do otherwise. It's unusual. My Zoe and Luke both have loads of thick, wavy hair. Their brother Joel has red hair like his dad. Like produces like. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Our natural birth produces a living, breathing human being, but one which is spiritually dead until our second birth. It's then that spirit gives birth to spirit. And just as natural born human beings grow up to resemble, for the most part, their parents, so spiritual babies should be continually being transformed into the image of Christ. It would be odd if they did not. If you've been born again, you should expect to be seeing signs in yourself of this transformation into the image of Christ. You should expect to become more compassionate. 
You should expect to begin to see people as Christ sees them and that will bring about a change in you, making you more compassionate. You should expect to be craving time with the Father. You should expect to become less selfish. You should expect to be more loving. And if these changes are not happening, then it tells you there's a problem. Are you different now to the way you were this time last year? Are you being transformed into the image of Christ? Like producers like, spirit gives birth to spirit. Jesus goes on. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Here Jesus makes very clear exactly how this work of transformation happens. It is the Spirit's work. It is the Spirit who gives this new life. The wind blows wherever it pleases. The Spirit does what the Spirit wills. Ultimately, this work of transformation is his work. Sure, we can choose to reject him or we can choose to cooperate with him in this work, but it is his work. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound. The wind has effects that we can all feel. And these effects bring out about change. The wind blows and things move. Seeds are lifted and thrown from the plants. And they're sent far and wide to produce a new generation of plants. Leaves rustle and they fall in autumn. Washing dries on the washing line. Boats are propelled across the harbour. You can't see the wind and you don't know where it originates from, but you can see its transforming effects. And so it is with the spirit. There are transforming effects that bring about change in a person's life. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or to where it is going. The wind is largely a mystery to us. We can do nothing to stop it. We can do nothing to control it. And we see that when we look at typhoons and hurricanes and cyclones. We do not know where it comes from or where it is going. Have you ever thought about a gust of wind that brushes past your cheek on a hot summer's day? A northerly wind blows through Melbourne. I can feel it hot and dry on my cheek as it brushes past. Where does it stop? Does someone in Tasmania feel that same wind brushing past their cheek in Tasmania? And if they do, then where does it go after that? Does it make it to Antarctica? And if it does, where does it go after that? We don't know. And the ways of the spirit are likewise a mystery to us. We do nothing to bring them into being. 
nor can we control them any more than we can control or bring into being the wind. The wind blows and things move. The Holy Spirit blows and our spirit moves. We can feel his effects on us, awakening in us new life, beginning that process of transformation towards Christ-likeness that begins when we are spiritually reborn. Nicodemus is confused. Clearly, as a Pharisee and a member of the Jewish ruling council, he should have understood some of these things from the references to them in the Old Testament. But he does not. And graciously, Jesus continues his teaching, explaining how this is possible using imagery that Nicodemus was sure to understand. The book of Numbers in the Old Testament, chapter 21, describes an incident where the Israelites are in the desert and they're whinging to Moses about food and about water or lack of, in spite of God's provision for them of manna and quail and water. And God becomes angry with them and he sends venomous snakes among the camp and many of them are bitten by snakes and they die. And the people repent and they come to Moses and they beg for Moses to pray to God. So Moses prays and God tells him to make a snake and to set it high on a pole. And so Moses does. They make a bronze snake and they set it high on a pole so that anyone who is bitten needs to just look at it and they will be saved. That is how this transformation will be possible because the Son of Man will be lifted high and anyone who looks to him and believes in him will be likewise saved and have eternal life. Time is, is getting away from us, so we're going to jump down now to verse 19. I used to be always one of those kids who'd read the first couple of pages of a book and then I'd read the last page and then decide if I wanted to read the book. We're going to do that now. We're going to jump down to uh, verse 19 where Jesus gives the verdict. Now, if you get time this week, go through this passage in detail. There's so much of it that we haven't been able to cover this morning. But here's the verdict. This is the verdict, says Jesus. Light has come into the world, but men loved the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. And it's time to revisit what we put aside earlier and bring it out and have a think. Remember how John introduced Jesus? In him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Now Jesus says to Nicodemus, here is the verdict. Light has come into the world. It's here. I'm here. But men love 
the darkness. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light because their deeds are evil. That is the choice they make. They won't come into the light. Instead, they choose to remain in the darkness. It is their choice. Finally, Jesus concludes by telling this man who came to him in the darkness of night that if he's to live by the truth, he will come into the light. Why? So that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Those that remain in darkness do so by their own choice. Those that choose light do so by the grace of God. Nicodemus has a decision to make. We have that same decision. Choose to remain in the darkness of sin or accept the gift of God's grace and come into the light and begin that journey of transformation into the image of Christ. Nicodemus appears twice more in our scriptures. This is not the end of his story. In John chapter 7, he is the lone voice that defends Jesus at great personal risk to himself in a meeting of the Jewish leaders who are furious at the way Jesus has been speaking and want him arrested. Then in John 19, he appears again, accompanying Joseph of Arimathea to retrieve the crucified body of Jesus and prepare it for burial. And we're going to pause here. I want you to think about what it would mean for a Pharisee, for a member of the Sanhedrin to appear to retrieve the body of Jesus. And it's at this point that I'm going to ask Pastor Glenn to come up here. I would call for volunteers, but there's only two people here and one of them's busy pushing buttons. So it's, it's Pastor Glenn. He's going to come up and he's going to play Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus didn't turn up empty-handed to retrieve the body of Jesus. He brought with him the necessary spices to prepare the body for burial. And it tells us in our Bibles, if you, if you turn to John chapter 19, you'll see that it tells us that he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes. Now, I went to Bunnings yesterday they had aloes, but they were in pots, and I don't think that's what Nicodemus was bringing. No myrrh anywhere to be found. So what I did was I bought something to sort of look like a bag of myrrh and aloes. So Pastor Glenn's going to stand here, and we're going to prepare him with what he needs for this burial. Pastor Glenn hands out Benjamin's. One. <laughs> Pastor Glenn, get ready. Two. How you going there? Okay. Three. Don't drop it because the carpet's new. 
Very strong man. Four. Actually, this was all I had of these cheap potting mix at Bunnings. There should be another bag here. He brought along 34 kilograms of this stuff. Would you like to put it down now? <laughs> you can put some down if you like before we have a bad accident here. You all right? You can keep one if you like. 34 kilos is what he brought along. I want to show you what he needed to do the job. This is how much is usually required for a Jewish burial. It's about 2.3 kilos, five pounds. What Pastor Glenn was holding was supposed to represent 75 pounds, and it would have if I had an extra bag there. You can put it down now if you want, thanks. 2.3 kilos for a normal Jewish burial. Nicodemus turns up with 34 kilos, 75 pounds instead of five pounds. Nicodemus turned up with enough myrrh and aloes to bury a king. There's no being inconspicuous when you're turning up with 34 kilos of spices with you. Either that would have had to have been loaded onto some sort of cart or he would have had to have other people carrying it with him because Pastor Glenn wasn't going to get very far with that amount of weight in his hands. Here in Jesus' darkest hour, when the disciples were nowhere to be seen, it was this man, Nicodemus, the man who had once come inconspicuously in the darkness, who now came in broad daylight, very conspicuously, to bury his king. Perhaps the penny finally dropped for Nicodemus when he saw Jesus lifted up on the cross to be crucified. Perhaps he recalled those words of Jesus to him just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Transformation was underway in the life of Nicodemus. Fear of the authorities, fear of his peers, fear of losing his status in society. Nicodemus was known or believed to be a very wealthy man. If he was thrown out of the temple or sent out of the, the Sanhedrin, lost his position in society, he would have trouble doing business among the Jews. Perhaps fear of his financial security, fear of being thrown out of the temple, fear of what others may think of him. All of these fears are likely to have held Nicodemus back from being all out for Jesus for much of his earthly ministry. What is it that holds you back and continues to pull you towards darkness? Are you ready yet to honour Jesus as your King?
Are you willing to be conspicuous for Jesus? Are you willing to accept, as Nicodemus finally did, the great personal risk that that might entail? Or are you more like one of the disciples who had all run away? Whoever lives by the truth, said Jesus, comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Father, what a wonderful testimony we have seen here in the life of Nicodemus. How deep and rich is the teaching that he received from Jesus that night he came seeking. Thank you, Lord, for the transforming work of your Holy Spirit in his life and in our own lives. Help us to stay out of the darkness, to cast aside our fears and to live lives that are truly full on for you. Amen. Now from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Go then this week, taking his transforming light into your part of the world. Amen. <laughs>